Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Human Circus. When last we spoke, the Pinto narrative had turned down an aisle, ostensibly stalking vengeance. But the products displayed on its shelves turned out mostly to be piracy. When last we spoke, revenge had at last been achieved. The Portuguese pirates finally striking a decisive blow against those especially unconscionable pirates who had so set back their colleagues' personal finances, and, to be fair, killed a number of compatriots, sunk their ship, and plunged Pinto himself into yet another of his trademark near-death experiences. The question which followed this success of theirs would have to be, were they done? Were they finished with this life? Or at least this session and season of it? Would they take their winnings and hard-won victory, both military and, in their eyes, moral, and go home, or at least go back to Malacca, where De Faria and Pinto could pay back those debts of theirs? Would they? Of course, they would not. The story would now turn toward the Chinese mainland, In Pinto's depiction, a land of great abundance, in all things really, but especially food. Passing along one river, he writes of, quote, So many sugar mills and presses for making wine and oil out of so many different kinds of fruits and vegetables that there are entire streets all along both sides of the river, two and three leagues long, that are lined with these food processing plants which is certainly enough to stagger the imagination. There were, to continue, warehouses stocked with an infinite supply of provisions, and just as many other rather long buildings, like storehouses, where they slice, salt, cure, and smoke every kind of game and meat that is found in the land. And they are piled high with stocks of ham, pork, bacon, Ducks, geese, cranes, ostrich, venison, beef, buffalo, tapir, yak, horse, tiger, dog, fox, and the meat of every other kind of animal on earth, which left us all gasping with amazement, as one would naturally expect, at such an unusual, astounding, and almost incredibly marvelous thing. And many a time, Pinto wrote, We would say that all the people in the world could not possibly consume that much food in one lifetime. There was abundance, but Pinto and the others would not exactly be partaking of it. 
his past, his very recent past, would again be catching up with him. That theme of sin and punishment would again reemerge, and it would send him across China, but in far from any circumstances that he would have chosen for himself. Today, we talk about those circumstances. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the history podcast which journeys that medieval world, and sometimes stretches into the period just after it, following the stories of its travelers. And it is a podcast that is supported by a Patreon, one where you can come aboard for as little as a dollar a month, or as much as makes sense for you. And whatever that number is, you can enjoy your podcast listening early and without advertising. And you can also hear extra mini-episodes, recent examples of which have covered early Portuguese diplomatic engagement in China, the journey of a 16th century celebrity elephant, and a certain fragrant wood, highly valued in Pinto's time, and still in ours. And now, back to the story. Back to the Fernão Mendes Pinto story. When last we left him, Pinto was coming away from a period of piracy. A lucrative one, if one characterized by some downs along with the ups. Being marooned on an island and losing everything they had. That sort of thing. He was also coming away from a successful bit of revenge. The killing of that treacherous pirate, not like their good selves, who had so badly set them back. But with all of that accomplished, what would they be doing next? Pinto, De Faria, and the rest. Would they be making their safe and secure return to Malacca, there to get back to slightly more regular business? As I said a moment ago, and as you could surely have guessed, they would not. They would be recovering themselves for a time, dining and resupplying in port. There'd be five months of fishing, falconry, hunting, and sport for De Faria, and a banquet in his honor. All very pleasant. But then, they'd get wind of another prospect, or more than one, actually. There'd be talk first of certain mines. There had already been a lot of talk in Pinto's narrative of prosperous mining regions, always just a little out of reach, more out of the way, always tantalizingly easy to be had by a few boats of armed men willing to apply themselves. But they'd pivot to another possibility, an island. One where members of Chinese royalty were said to be entombed in golden chapels and among golden idols. They were told, quote, that the only trouble or difficulty they would encounter was no more than that of loading the ships. They were told many other things of such great majesty and splendor that, Pinto wrote, I will pass over for fear that they may raise doubts in the mind of the reader. 
more doubts, I suppose, than were already thrown up by the proposed tomb raiding, and the trouble it would most certainly bring them. Or perhaps just different ones. Now, quote, since Antonio de Faria was by nature a very curious person, and not wholly devoid of greed, either. Not that you needed telling at this stage. He immediately became so taken with the idea of this Chinese island, that on word alone, without any other proof, he decided to throw all caution to the winds and undertake this voyage. And he was unwilling to seek anyone else's advice on the matter, which scandalized a few of his friends somewhat and not without reason. And you can see why, given that a number of those friends were presumably the same who had previously pushed to end the whole venture and head home. Back during last episode, when it seemed that achieving revenge was a vain hope that they would never reach their goal. When you consider how likely all of this was to end in yet more disaster, in the Pinto narrative in particular, you can, again, see why. But there was money to be made, and lost, ships to be sunk, treasures to be taken from those ever-so-tempting imperial tombs. So Pinto and the others were going to be headed off to that island. Calamploy, it was called though neither I nor anyone else, so far as I can tell, knows exactly where that was supposed to be. There are some who place it in Korea, then flowing from early to mid-Joseon period. So perhaps not China at all. It was the spring of 1542, when they set sail in a pair of boats chosen in number and kind, for being ocean-worthy, and unlikely to attract attention. We are not talking about Portuguese carracks here. There was passage, on the way, through a heavily trafficked strait, busy enough with large ships that De Faria apparently had second thoughts about the entire venture, and wished to turn back. But another man on board, who, Pinto says, was Chinese, talked him down, it was the same man who had told De Faria about the island in the first place. It's too late for your lordship or anyone else in our company to talk about sins, he told him. I warned you publicly before we set out that the risks would be enormous, and for me, more than you. If we're caught, they will only kill you once, but they won't be satisfied with just that for me. He offered De Faria a safer, but much longer course, which De Faria gratefully accepted, though there would be other outbursts of misgivings from him on the voyage. Those grumblings aside, the trip saw stops near hostile residents who rushed down to the water where they anchored, and made it very clear, with menacing gesticulations, that they should move along. It saw a stop with no residence at all, something De Faria found even more ominous in his search for someone who could confirm where they were. 
and where they were headed. It saw them reach a bay teeming with fish and serpents, of which one who knew of the area told many incredible and apparently dreadful things about the sea life, and also about what could be heard in the night, especially during the interlunar periods of November, December, and January, when the rainstorms begin and darkness sets in. Pinto noted the blanket fish, likely a type of ray, the huge lizards with rows of spines and protruding teeth like a boar's, and quote, some other dark black fish resembling the sea devil, but so monstrously large that the head alone was more than six handspans across, and when swimming with their fins spread out, they measured more than a fathom around. The nights were full of, quote, such a weird chorus of howls, grunts, and snorts rising from the water, along with the barking noises of the seahorses coming from the beach, that Pinto could not put it into words. There were sightings of wildlife on the hunt, which delighted the Portuguese. There was an encounter with the cattle-trading folk, who particularly fascinated De Faria, though Pinto writes that their manner of speech was disconcerting. There was a long stretch of river, during which they saw no sign of anyone at all, save for fires far inland on a few of the nights. There is a slightly unreal or fantastical feel about the entire passage. Reaching the ocean again, the company was in rough shape, underfed, and catastrophically undersupplied. They ran thirteen days on meager rations of daily rice, and then helped themselves to what turned out to be the storehouse of a charitable venture, taking rice and beans, many pots full of honey, smoked duck, onions, garlic, and sugarcane and no doubt really endearing themselves to the locals, the ones whose attention they were still trying to avoid, shying away from ships whenever they saw them, particularly in numbers. At some point, the man on whose guidance and expertise they had been relying on, the one whose mention of this island had launched this whole venture, became uncertain as to where exactly they were. Under de Faria's threat that he better become certain quickly and provide some reason for everyone else to also, the man opted instead to slip away in the night. And when de Faria left the boat to go searching for him, he returned to find that the majority of the Chinese sailors who had been along had also felt it better to abandon the mission and leave when they could. It was a little unsettling, and none who remained were happy about the situation, but it was decided that they would press on, with little else to be done, some eighty days in. They had not exactly been around the world in that time, but they had come a long way to have nothing to show for it. So on they went. 
It was on the 83rd day after departure that this somewhat diminished they reached their destination, and they were amazed by what they saw. Circling the island, they took in the walls, well worked in cut stone slabs, shaped so that they seemed all of one piece. A jasper rope running along the wall's midriff, as if round a monk's robe. An infinite number of cast-iron monsters, holding hands like dancers. Exquisitely wrought arches that their eyes could hardly get enough of. Groves of citrus. And the chapels, as the text has them, that they had come so very far for. Under cover of darkness, Deferia took a party ashore and into one of those chapels. In the scene that follows, the Portuguese found what they were looking for, more or less. Coffins that, when broken open, yielded up great quantities of silver goods, and no one of note or strength sufficient to stop them or otherwise do anything about it. De Faria was confronted by a solitary caretaker, a hermit, and an infirm and elderly one at that. The man could do nothing to prevent them from going about their rather unpleasant business, but he did let them know what he thought of it, and of them. And Pinto again put words of criticism to paper through the mouths of non-Portuguese speakers. The man referred to the looters as a pack of hungry dogs, whom, it seemed to him, all the silver in the world could never satisfy. He urged Deferia against the sin he was committing, urged him, at a minimum, to at least have his men pick up and respectfully handle all those bones of the saints that they were currently allowing to tumble about the floor in their haste to get at the treasure they craved. He decried their, quote, inborn wickedness and feigned virtue, and spoke regretfully of the hell that would surely follow them in this life and take them in the next for what they did. They might as well also pillage all the other chapels, he exclaimed, for then they would at least sink to the bottom all the faster and have it done with. Those other chapels would need to wait for another day, though. As for now, the Portuguese were bundling back to the ships with what silver they had won. The old hermit they left unharmed behind them, for he was hardly in any shape to do anything that would hinder them. The next day looked very much as though it was set to be a very profitable one which of course means that they would be enjoying no such thing. The old hermit was indeed old and unwell, but not so much so that he could not crawl over to one of the other chapels after they'd left. Not so much so that he could not find someone to send word of what was happening. Not so much so that Deferia wasn't shaken awake in the night, to the sight of a signal fire spreading, and confirmation from the Chinese aboard that it was indeed an alarm that had been rung, that their presence was known 
and that they very much needed to go. Deferia was not quick to accept this reality. He raged beside himself, scaled the wall, and rushed back and forth on the island with no real purpose. Only when he'd happened upon someone who he could take captive and question, did he accept that the alert had gone out. He began, quote, tearing at his beard and beating his breast for having lost, through his own carelessness and ignorance, such a great thing as he had undertaken, if only he had carried it through to the end. They could not now remain and merrily empty out those other buildings of their silver. They had to leave, and eventually even Deferia himself knew this to be true. You sense a bit of the panic in the scene, those on the boats itching to get going, Deferia running about in the dark, having not listened to reason. Finally, they were all on the same page and aboard the ships, but punishment, of a kind, would find them, and it would not take long. They went from that place seven days at a sprint, morale exceedingly low, and stopping only very briefly for provisions before they carried on. Having gone by estuary for a time, they were back out on the open waters when the typhoon struck them. In their little ships, and left short-handed, they soon knew that there was little hope. They opted to let themselves roll coastwards, quote, taking it for the lesser of two evils to be dashed against the rocks than to drown at sea. They jettisoned all they could, and so great was the madness with which we went about this arduous task, Pinto wrote, that even the provisions and crates of silver went over the side. And after that, we cut away both masts, for by then, the wind was on the quarter, and we ran that way under bare poles for the rest of the day. In the darkness of night, they heard a cry of, Lord God, have mercy, coming from Deferia's vessel, as if it were sinking. They called out an answer, but got no further response, as if it had already gone down. Pinto, aboard the remaining ship, was there when the hull cracked open and began to flood. Was still there when they were dashed against a rocky point, and the ship came apart. Of the Portuguese who had been aboard the two ships, only fourteen were left. Of De Faria, whose desires had driven them, first in regaining his lost loans and investment, then in revenge, and finally, in this latest acquisitive venture, there was no sign. As for what became of Pinto and the others, and for where his story would take him next, we will see after this short break. Pinto's latest shipwreck forms a double purpose in his narrative. 
It visits punishment upon him and his fellows for their latest sins, those on that island. And it sets up their next adventures, their trials in mainland China. By one assessment, Pinto's prodigiously imagined reconstruction of the China he actually observed is used as a critical utopian mirror of his own world and its values. Others are less sure about the whole actually observed part. By another reading, Pinto's knowledge of China, particularly its interior, could only have been very superficial and in sharp contrast to his actual experience of the coast, and especially that of Sumatra and the Southeast Asian mainland. To the interior of China, he could have added little new to the contemporary Portuguese image, relying instead on a mix of oral reports and written records, such as those of the Dominican Gaspar de Cruz and Melchior Nunez Barreto, a Jesuit. He could have added little new by this reading, but that was not to say that he had little to say. His story went on, but now with Antonio de Faria removed from it, a character who some readers have seen as inseparable from Pinto's own, a kind of avatar for particular urges and characteristics within himself and perhaps not the ones he was proudest of. His story featured the unpleasant sight of the dead washed up on the shoreline. Unpleasant work to bury them in the sand against the coming of predators. It featured their start north, and an attempted swim across an estuary, which killed three more, two of them brothers, all from the same northern Portuguese town. Those that remained, eleven Portuguese and three enslaved, of unspecified origins, wept of exhaustion, grief, and despair. Then they went on. Their wanderings were guided next by the sight of fire in the pre-dawn light. It brought them to some charcoal makers, who kindly gave them a little rice, and pointed them on their way to a nearby village. There, they were aided and clothed in one rest house of the poor, and sent on to another, with more resources, in a larger town. Everywhere they went, there were helpful folk, who gave what they could, and gathered resources that they themselves didn't have to provide. One spoke of the nature of the world, a, quote, poor and miserable place, no good can be expected of it, whereas God is infinitely rich and a friend to the poor. Everywhere, they lied about their identity, understandably not owning up to having been sunk after a bit of grave robbing and desecration. Instead, once more claiming the kingdom of Siam as their origin, shipwreck, the disaster that had struck them, Nanking, their goal, where they desired to sign on as oarsmen. They were generally treated with great generosity, if also sometimes gently mocked for eating with their hands rather than with, quote, those two little sticks 
that looked like spindles. But at one location, they were taken for thieves, chased, beaten, bound, and thrown in a cistern, swarming with leeches. By the time a traveler from a village they'd already visited happened by and spoke on their behalf, seeing them set free, they dripped as much with blood as water from two days spent among those leeches, really bringing the stand-by-me memories rushing back for those of a certain generation. At another, they were again shouted at as thieves, and they made themselves scarce very quickly, for fear of again seeing the leeches. They plodded on, the overall tone here one of bleak gloom and depression. There was a night that they spent on a dunghill, and another, in rather better circumstances, in a building where the image of a man, vaguely tortoise-like, was displayed upside down on the wall. Everything about me is like this, was written nearby, apparently a reference to the illusory and deceptive nature of this world. They went frequently astray, having no one to guide them more directly as they zigzagged about the land. They went village to village, avoiding the larger cities and towns for fear of authorities who might trouble them. But they stumbled into view of those authorities anyways, and despite all their efforts to avoid it. They had gone on for around two months, asking here and there for the assistance of others in order to live, when they had the misfortune to be spotted in doing so by a kind of traveling judge, who just happened to see them and waved them over to his window, where he demanded that they explain themselves. A nearby law clerk, who intervened to characterize them as idlers and vagrants who spent their lives loafing about in people's doorways, did not do them any favors. What followed this chance encounter, most immediately, was shackles, whips, and starvation for twenty-six hard days. Twenty-six thousand days, Pinto said it felt like. What followed, in a longer sense, was a sprawling story of legal entanglement and misfortune, only ending in the most unlikely of fashions, and with the intervention of an old friend of the podcast. Not an individual, I should say, but a set of figures, a group, often an overwhelming military threat. It's an aspect of Pinto's Chinese section of the work that is often pointed out, that they would here appear in the story far removed from their usual context, as if having moved through time to again storm through this land. I feel like I've already given away too much. We'll cut this episode a little short here. And I'll be back again soon so that we can reacquaint ourselves with those old friends, see where Pinto and the others' legal troubles were heading, and meet another somewhat unlikely figure. This one, like Pinto, Portuguese, though not someone we have met in the series so far. All of that and more next time. For now, thank you for listening 
I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.